All right, turn if you would to Psalm 11. Psalm 11. Some days, nothing seems to go right. Maybe one or more of your kids starts throwing up in the middle of the night, or maybe it's you if your kids are out of the house. Uh, maybe your alarm doesn't go off, so you're late to something important. Maybe bad weather means you have to cancel an activity you were looking forward to with friends or family. Perhaps it's even something more serious than some of these things. A corrupt judge or politician is elected once again. Maybe it's someone falsely accuses you and you lose your job or some position that was important to you. Perhaps a family member creates conflict that excludes you from holiday activities. Whatever it is, what is our natural response in these sorts of circumstances? It's easy for us to doubt God when we face these kinds of, of difficulties. When life is falling apart, whether it's in a small way or in a big way, where do you turn? Where should we turn? I think Psalm 11 would point us to this. I think it would tell us that if you are righteous, you can and should rest in God. We can rest in God despite the attacks of the wicked. We see this in verses 1 through 3. It says, In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? We see first of all in verse 1 that God is your refuge. It says, In the Lord I take refuge. Obviously, the idea of taking refuge would be shelter when it's uh, raining outside, you want to get under an overhang so you don't get soaked. When there's a snowstorm going on or a windstorm or something like a tornado, you want to get somewhere where you're going to be safe. Last Saturday, I think it was, I don't know if you all experienced that so there's some pretty high winds going on. That's a time when you generally didn't want to be outside. You wanted to find some kind of a shelter. That's what David's expressing. He's saying, God is my refuge. God is my shelter. Obviously, this is only true if two things are the case. The first is that you truly know God, because God is not a refuge for his enemies. And that's why I said, if you are righteous, rest in God. Secondly, if you are righteous, God is not a refuge for the sinner. God does not tolerate or accept sin, even from his people. We see from, throughout the Bible, God takes a a severe attitude towards sin on a number of occasions in the life of the people of Israel or in other characters that we see throughout the Bible. So God is your refuge if you truly know him, as David's testimony was, and if you are righteous, which I think at this time David's testimony is also that, although not all throughout his life, certainly. Why do we need God as our refuge? Why do we need to rest in God? Because the wicked will test your faith. We see this in the second half of verse 1 down through verse 3. First of all, they mock your trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? It's almost as though the wicked are standing there and they're saying, run away from us. Get out of here. It has echoes for me of what David faced with Goliath in 1 Samuel 17. Goliath stands up. 
He mocks the armies of Israel. He says, why don't you guys send out a champion who can defeat me? And if he can't defeat me, then you belong to us and we'll slaughter all of you. What was the response of the people of Israel at that time? Their hearts quaked in fear. They were distraught. They didn't know what to do. They were ready to run away. There's a question, certainly, of when it's appropriate to run away and when to stand. When David was uh, encountering Saul's anger and Saul throws the spear and tries to pin him to the wall, we would tend to think that would be a time in which David would run away. But if you read down through the rest of the chapter, it seems that this happened on more than one occasion. And later in the chapter is when David actually marries Saul's daughter and, and sticks around the palace for a while. And so uh, David's judgment, presumably with God's leading, was that it was not yet time for him to flee. But when the wicked attack your faith, they're going to say, run away. What hope do you have? What strength do you have? What help do you have? What, how do we respond? There are certainly times when it's appropriate to flee. David, in his life, fled when Absalom sought to kill him. And, uh, you know, certainly someone could argue that perhaps he should not have fled, knowing that he was the king and knowing that God was with him. But that aside, I think there are times when it's appropriate to avoid the worst harm that could come to us. I was thinking about this in connection with uh, Paul's experience toward the end of Acts. The Romans have him laid out, ready to scourge him. He says, by the way, I'm a Roman citizen. And they said, all right, we're not supposed to beat a Roman citizen, at least not to scourge him. So they untied him and they said, all right, well, we're going to put you in jail instead for a bit until we figure out what's going on. I think there are certainly circumstances where we can take advantage of protections. But I think the focus of this psalm is less on those sorts of circumstances and more on our general attitude. Is our general attitude to have confidence in God's presence or is our general attitude to run away at the first sign of opposition? And that's something that we have to ask ourselves. When we're not accustomed to opposition, it's easy for us to see it and say, I don't know what to do with this. I'm going to run away. Not only do they mock your trust, but they also plot against you. Look at verse 2. Behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make their arrow ready upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the first phrase was run away, the second is, if you don't, we're going to destroy you. Now, some people see here a, a figurative sort of sense that, that the arrow, the shooting in darkness is accusations of words and those sorts of things. But given David's experience and given the context, I think he's actually talking about physical harm that's being threatened against him. The point, regardless of which of those two it is, and I think it probably is physical harm, is that the wicked seek to do evil against those who are following God. Notice in the end of verse 2, the upright in heart. These are those who are following God. The wicked don't like it because it exposes their sin, and so they seek to destroy them. I'm sure you've all encountered this. If you worked at a job with lost people, at some point, particularly certain types of jobs, their goal is to get you to swear, get you to cheat, get you to lie, to do something that discredits your following God. Why? Because the more that you follow God, even if you don't say anything to them, the more it contrasts with their way of life, and that upsets them and it bothers them, and they don't want anything to do with it. 
been studying through the book of Acts with the kids in the 8th grade Bible class that I teach, and it's fascinating how many times the response of the Jews, as soon as someone stands up and starts preaching the gospel, is that they want to beat that person, throw them in jail, or kill them. And the, the kids in the class almost have this, this response of, here they're at it again, and you know, that's kind of their perspective on it, but when you look at it, why is that? Because every time someone would stand up and preach the gospel, it wasn't just preaching the gospel, it was reminding them that they were sinners, that they were guilty in God's sight. And the wicked don't want to be reminded of those things. And so sometimes, whether it's by our words or by our very lives, we'll face this sort of opposition. And this sort of comes to a, either a climax or the, the bottom of the trench, depending on how you want to look at it, in verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And that is that the wicked overthrow all human security. This question would be, who's going to help you now? Where are you going to turn? When it says foundations there, it's translated a couple of different ways in the Old Testament. A couple of times it's translated with the idea of hips or like the part that supports you. So obviously, um, if you've ever moved something really heavy, like a piano, I don't know if any of you got stuck helping move our piano, I forget, when we moved in, you don't want to go over and just pick it up with your arms. What do you do? You want to use your, your hips. That's the foundation, the strength, the security of being able to do something like that. Another place, this word is translated pillars in Isaiah, and it talks about the pillars of Egypt being destroyed. The imagery seems to be this idea that the things that hold society together, the leaders, the structures, all of these sorts of things, are thrown into chaos by the schemes of the wicked. And if that is the case, what are you going to do? If goodness is punished, if evil prevails, what's your hope? What's your security? It's certainly not in what's supposed to protect you. The government's supposed to restrain evil. That's God's intent for it. But when it's corrupt, when it's taking advantage of you, where do you turn? What's your help in? We ought to trust God despite the attacks of the wicked. But what's the basis of that trust? Well, it starts in verse 4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence His soul hates. Upon the wicked He will rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, He loves righteousness, the upright will behold His face. So what do we see here? We are supposed to, first of all, um, recognize that we ought to rest in God despite the attacks of the wicked. But furthermore, we're supposed to rest in God himself because he judges rightly. We see in verse 4 that God examines from heaven. He rules over all. It says, The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. And it's interesting because we tend to think of those as two separate things. A temple versus a throne, we would tend to think that those are two different things. They certainly were in Israel's history. There was the temple, and then there was the palace. They weren't the same thing. There was the tabernacle, and then there was Moses' tent where he was sitting and judging. They weren't the same thing. But for God, God is both the object of our worship and the one who rules over all things. And so that's why David can use these things in a parallel fashion. God is exalted over all things. Uh... This has a reminder for me to some extent of what it says in Isaiah 6 about the Lord. I saw the Lord high and lifted up, right? And his 
uh, King James word is train, his robe, the, his clothing, his glory filled that temple, the place where he was. And so that's certainly what Isaiah saw. That's, I think, the imagery that David is using. But in the second half of the verse, we see this idea, his eyes behold and his eyelids test the sons of men. Clearly, this is a, a, a case of figurative language. It's not as though his eyes are the thing that's actually doing the judging. It's rather that the eyes stand for the entirety of his person. And the fact that he uses this word eyes and eyelids is to connect it, I think, with God's omniscience. God's knowledge is that he sees and knows everything. God sees and knows everything. And so, on that basis, God is the one who is preeminently qualified to judge. We're not always qualified to judge because we don't see the whole picture. But if you have a God who's high and exalted and sees everything, He can judge rightly. He can judge justly because He knows the good and the bad. And that's what I think we see in verses 5 and 6. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence His souls hates. Upon the wicked He will rain snares, fire and brimstone, and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. So God distinguishes, first of all, between good and evil. It says, the Lord who tests the righteous and the wicked. God evaluates all of them, but clearly there's a difference between the righteous and the wicked. They're not in the same category. How do we know this? Because it says in verse 5 in the second half, the one who loves violence, his soul hates. And so God has set himself in opposition to those who love violence, those who commit murder, those who sin in various ways. Think of the examples from even the first part of the Old Testament. Cain killed his brother. What was God's response? You're cursed. You're a wanderer on the earth. What about Lamech? God is clearly displeased with Lamech, who looked at Cain and said, well, he killed one person, I've killed two. Uh, God was opposed to the Philistines, to all of these pagan nations of Canaan, who were characterized not only by violence against each other, but by violence even against their very children. They would sacrifice them in worship to their gods. They would perform all sorts of gross wickedness, and God opposes such people. It says his soul hates. And uh, if we put that in our frame of rest, reference, uh, sometimes we use the word hate carelessly. I hate broccoli or um, I hate traffic. For God, this is on a totally different scale, right? God hating something is that his, he's entirely opposed to it, and it's not just like, if we're opposed to something, we have a fairly limited sphere of influence. But go back to the verse that says, God reigns over everything, God's in his temple in heaven. If God hates something, it's, it's significant. We should pay attention to it. But furthermore... God brings them disaster and desolation. Why do I say disaster? It says, Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Uh, some translations may say coals of fire. But even if we take the, that word snares, we tend not to think of that as something that's, that's falling from the sky. But God's judgment comes upon those who conspire against others. This is all throughout Proverbs and Psalms and so forth. Those who wickedly conspire to trap others. We saw this in Psalm 9 and Psalm 10. What happens to them? Their traps, their schemes, their plots return upon themselves and bring them judgment. 
Furthermore, when it says fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup, now this is a contrast, I think, of outcomes. What did David say about God? He's my portion forever. Uh, there's also, obviously, all the imagery in the Old Testament about birthrights and, and the land assigned to God's people when they divided it up, when they came into the promised land. All of these sorts of ideas of portion, inheritance, what you receive. What will the wicked receive? Fire, brimstone, burning wind. We don't know for sure if David has this in mind, but as many times as it's held up in the Old Testament, certainly the example of Sodom and Gomorrah is something that probably crosses our mind when we see this sort of idea. What comes to those who behave and live in wickedness? Judgment. But then in verse 7 we see the contrast. God punishes the wicked in verses 5 and 6, but God delivers the righteous. And it's interesting to see how this verse is structured. It sort of builds on itself. The Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright or the righteous will behold his face. What's God like? God's righteous. What does God love? Those who conform to his character. What's the result? Those who conform to his character will behold his face. They'll be in his presence. They'll be in a relationship with him. And, depending on how intense this hope is that's expressed in verse 7, perhaps it's even talking about the fact that their ultimate destiny is to be with God, in contrast to the portion of the wicked, which is to face God's judgment eternally. And so, as we look at a passage like this, we have to ask ourselves, why, when do I have to rest in God in the face of the opposition of the wicked? Why do I have to rest in God? Because of his character. But this also raises another question for us that I alluded to at the beginning, and that is, am I righteous? Because clearly God is opposed to the one who loves violence, the one who is wicked, and he brings destruction upon that person. Sometimes in a temporal sense, the soul that sins will die. Sometimes in an eternal sense, the second death. And so as we see a passage like this, the first question I think we should ask ourselves is, am I righteous? Clearly that's not something that comes of ourselves. That's something that has to be given to us through Christ imputed to our account, so to speak. And yet, even if we have begun to have a relationship with Christ by knowing Him, I think this is a question we have to constantly be asking ourselves. Am I righteous? Not by my own strength, but am I striving to follow God? We all face temptation. It takes different forms. Different temptations are more appealing to one person than another. One person it may be anger. One person it may be greed. One person, it may be pride. Whatever the temptation is, am I giving into that temptation and allowing it to characterize my life like the wicked, at least in verse uh, 5, are described as those who love violence, for example? Does that describe my life? Or am I turning away from wickedness and following God as I ought? If I am, I can come before him confidently and say, God, you're my refuge. When the wicked oppose and say, run away, we will destroy you. Where are you going to go? Where, where are you going to turn? What's your hope in? We can turn to God. But to come into the presence of a God who is holy, 
who distinguishes between good and evil, who recognizes the difference between the righteous and the wicked, I think we ought to examine our hearts and say, am I living in righteousness or am I living in wickedness? If the second is true, if I'm living in wickedness, I would to repent from it. If I'm living in righteousness, they say, God, it's only by your help. I cast myself on you. I need your help in this time. And God will hear you because as it said in verse 7, God is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. And so when the world seems to be falling apart, when the very foundations of your confidence actually or metaphorically speaking are being shaken, where do you turn? If you are righteous, you can and should rest in God. And as we go to our time of prayer, let's keep this in mind for those that we are praying for. And certainly, we could pray through a passage like this on their behalf. God, help this person to seek refuge in you. God, help me and help all of us in our church to examine our hearts and to make sure that we are not aligning ourselves with those who are wicked, but with those who are righteous. God, thank you that we can be confident that if we possess the righteousness of Christ, we will behold your face. We belong to you. We're your people. And that gives us hope. There's, there's many ways that we could pray this, this psalm together.